Welcome to the Patristics Podcast, where the writings of the ancient church are reborn for the modern world. In this episode, Gary and Alvin continue discussing the Didache. We can hit on some of the major themes. Okay. I think baptism would be an interesting one. Um, and also Eucharist. Obviously, you know, for those interested in patristics and orthodoxy, those would be two major ones to kind of discuss. Oh, and fasting, of course. Yeah. And prayer. Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, those three sections back to back to back. You can just go ahead. <laughs> okay. So in, I believe it's chapter seven. Uh, yeah, chapter seven. I'm using, uh, Thomas O'Laughlin's text of the, uh, the Didache in his book, A Window on the Earliest Christians, the Didache. Uh, so with regard to baptism, here's the teaching. You are to baptize in this way. Once you have gone back over all, that is in the two ways. You baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and living water. However, if you do not have access to living water, then baptize in some other water. If you do not have any cold water, then you can use warm water. And if you cannot get access to either, then pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Moreover, before the baptism takes place, let both the person baptizing and the person who is going to be baptized fast, along with as many others as are able to do so. Indeed, you must instruct the person who is going to be baptized to fast for one or two days before the baptism. I think this text is so beautiful in simplicity, mm-hmm. especially as we've received this tradition within orthodoxy. Yeah. It's, it, it reads very, you know, contemporary. Baptism uh, debate settled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, especially as a, a Jewish Christian sect, you have this idea of both immersion and if you aren't able to immerse, then you can just pour water on the head. Right. Um, and it's funny because I've heard some people debate, uh, about whether Orthodox immersion should be the standard or whether Catholic uh, sprinkling is okay or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think getting so worked up about those differences is, you know, understandably, you know, there's, there's a certain image you get with being immersed, um, uh, mm-hmm. You're immersed in the death of resurrection, or at least in the death of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 6. Yeah. Um, but the, the Didache offers some, you know, some space there in terms of liturgically how it, how it could be done. So, yeah. but I mean, the preference does seem to be immersion, uh, because, uh, the, the, the second part is if you cannot get access to either, then this is okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like, you know, here's the rule, and then here's the, you know, economia applied, yeah. you know. Um, Definitely. It seems that the one essential of Orthodox baptism is is simply to be baptized with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, mm-hmm. The ideal mode of baptism is in a cold river. Um, but if there are no bodies of running water available, a lake will suffice. If you don't have a lake, make a pool. If you can't obtain a large body of water, then pouring water on the head three times will suffice. It's also interesting that both the baptizer and the baptizee, is that a word? <laughs> it should be. Um, <laughs> it is now. That they ought to fast in preparation for the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And that's something that doesn't get emphasized, really. 
Yeah. I when I got baptized, that was something my priest told my wife and I is, you know, in preparation baptism, we should fast. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he, when he was telling me that, um I had read uh, this text, you know, a number of years ago mm-hmm. out of curiosity and it just kinda like came rushing back to me. It was clicked. Like, oh, it's just yeah. It's it was definitely like this um you feel like you're participating uh in a history of, of tradition. Uh yep. you know that's one of those moments, you know, when uh high liturgical churches that can really trace back some of the traditions, you really feel like you're part of something bigger. Uh, exactly. Like wow uh, we're still doing this. Yeah. And it's not like some, you know, immediate returning back to early Christianity thing, but a way of saying I honor those who have come before me and the traditions that they have set as good and worthy things to reflect within our, my own spiritual life. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's very beautiful. Definitely. Um, so, but uh, on the topic of fasting, in chapter 8, next section, uh, which this is also interesting because this is really, in this text is where we first get actual practical instructions for fasting. Uh, you see different types of um, descriptions of fasting within the New Testament with Jesus, the apostles, and then in Acts. But you really aren't given specifics. But here you are given specifics. Fast before you baptize. Uh, and the next section uh, is particularly interesting. Uh, so starting in chapter 8, you must not let your days of fasting be at the same time as those of hypocrites. And this is where we get into interesting polemics here. Yep. Uh, they fast on the second day of the Sabbath and on the fifth day of the Sabbath. So you should hold your fast on the fourth day of the Sabbath and the day of preparation. So the hypocrites here are Jews definitely. or the Pharisees. Yeah, definitely yeah. the Jews. And so in order to differentiate themselves, so we have some uh, social markers here. The Jewish Christians, they fast on different days. Yep. Um, so yep. particularly inter- it's, it's interesting. It's kind of also kind of funny in yeah. a sense because uh, – not to make light of the situation, but it almost seems a little bit, excuse me for using this yeah. term, but a little bit petty yeah, yeah. Uh, to like switch the days of fasting. At the same time, there is, you, you don't see the reasoning within this text, but uh, later you later on we see the liturgical reasons why. Right. It's because on, uh, on Wednesdays, it's, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's, uh, so the reason, you know, Orthodox Christians fast on Wednesdays is because it's in remembrance of the betrayal of Christ. And then on Fridays, because Judas betrayed right. Jesus on Wednesday, and on Fridays in remembrance of his crucifixion and death. Mm-hmm. So there's that weekly aspect of remembering that passion of Christ, particularly those two episodes. Yep. So we're given that theological reason later, uh, at least within this text, really no theological reasons why. In, in the next part of chapter 8, uh, nor should you offer prayers as the hypocrites do. Uh, rather, you should pray like this, just as the Lord commanded in his gospel. And it goes through a version of what it was the Lord's Prayer, um, yeah. with some differences from uh, from Matthew's text. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Um, for this section, I just have the... That the, cause some people don't realize that the, the hypocrite label is referencing the Jews. Um, right. that it was a common Jewish Christian label against unbelieving Jews who try to follow the Torah 
after rejecting the very Messiah testified within it. Mm. And and they got this language from Christ himself in his encounters with the Pharisees. You know, that's mm. that's where that hypocrite thing comes from. Um, right. And that this reveals the beginnings of the Christian community distancing itself from the broader, unbelieving Jewish community. Christianity is becoming its own identity rather than simply being seen as a fringe group within Judaism. Right. And it's also interesting that the Christians were commanded to pray the Our Father three times a day, which is something mm. we Orthodox still do today. Yep, or at least we, we try to do every day. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, Lord have mercy on us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the three times a day. Um, it's also interesting because, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm sure this is right, the, uh, um, the Shema within Judaism is repeated three times a day. Yeah. Uh, with your morning, noon, and uh, afternoon prayers. Yep. So the Our Father in in a way, it really kind of takes over yep. um, as like this early mantra of Christianity. And then um, in this next section, we should have really got a priest to uh, to discuss this. <laughs> so we will tread lightly where uh, where angels well, wait, was the phrase. Uh, uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Um, yeah. Well, we will try to be as angelic as we can then. I'm not going to go all uh, Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That takes you back, uh, huh? Oh, yeah, I feel old. I think uh, <laughs> I saw a YouTube video. like It was like an anniversary of that coming out. I forgot what year it was, but I remember I was watching that, that video like probably a couple weeks after it first came out, and I was much <laughs> younger then. <laughs> um, so in Chapter 9, talked about Eucharist. And it's interesting, the order here. Uh, now, this is how you should engage in giving thanks. Uh, bless God in this way. First, at the cup say, we give thanks to you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be glory forever. Then when it comes to the broken loaf, say, we give thanks to you, our, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be glory forever. Two interesting things to note, um, and this is more part Part of the development of uh, liturgics and a little bit of the theological development we see within early Christianity as well. They go for the cup first and then the loaf, whereas in Orthodoxy today, uh, we do the loaf first and then the cup. And what's also interesting is that the Holy Spirit is absent within these uh, formulations as well. Obviously, um, there was a little bit of debate, just a little though, of the role of the Holy Spirit uh, yeah. within uh, the economy of God. So um, it's it's interesting that he is absent here, yet he is present within the baptism. So it, this is a, a very interesting insight into that Trinitarian development. At least right now, we see more of its binitarian aspect, but. Um, which is odd it's odd that um people like some scholars like in the past concluded that this was a montanist text you know like right of all well, of all the people like they were the ones who emphasized the holy spirit more than anyone right exactly uh yeah that's very interesting to note yeah and then it goes on to talk about eucharist and only let those who have been baptized in the name of the lord eat and drink at eucharist 
Um, yeah, I was just going to say that it's interesting because it reveals how the church in these regions practice cl- close communion. Right, very early on. I mean, yeah. and that's that's saying something about the exclusivity of Christianity. Yeah. And they always wanted. I, I feel like some scholars would always want to depict early Christianity as very open, when in fact it was, you know, obviously theological, but it was also a survival aspect as well. I mean, you just yeah. can't let anyone into your fold. Uh, which uh, elsewhere in the Didache also mentions um, false prophets coming in. Um, yeah. So uh, they're very protective of their community, and they, they rightly so, because they could have easily been taken over internally through people who are wanting to become leaders um, and exactly. economically exploit um, these groups. That's in chapter 11. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it says when the apostle departs, let him take nothing but bread until he finds another place to stay. If he asks for money, then he's a false prophet. Whoever says in the spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. However, if he asks you to give for the sake of others who are in need, let no one judge him. <laughs> it shows how uh, people were trained to pay close attention with regards to the reasons people ask for money. Yeah. It also shows how con artists were alive and well even in the first century. You know, the Con yeah. Artists for Christ gang. Right. <laughs> also yeah. known as, uh, that also has an unbroken chain of succession. We just know them today as TBN. <laughs> uh, yeah, did you see the article on, I think, Benny Hinn? Uh, some people showed up, uh, the IRS showed up. Uh, yeah, actually. Did you see? Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, yeah. 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 What else that was new? interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that, that did not catch anyone by surprise. I just thought it was about time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, I do feel really bad for people that uh, these televangelists exploit uh, for their own personal gain under yeah. the name of God. I mean, I think that's very detrimental to Christianity. I mean, that's for sure one one of the reasons why you have so many people saying that you know religious leaders all they want is money. You know, exactly. our churches all they want is money. Yep. So it's it's very unfortunate uh, that that happens. But I think making people aware of texts like this it kind of helps. You know counter those narratives of religious leaders asking for money. And I think it's important to you know, educate ourselves about the the damage uh, con artists uh, have within Christianity and allowing them to flourish just, I mean, it, it blasphemes God. I mean, they're false prophet. You know? Yeah. Have you ever seen the, um, the BBC documentary on the Westboro Baptist Church? I have seen uh, clips from YouTube on it, yes. The, there is this one scene that I just think is like the most hilarious thing in the world. The interviewer walks in on Fred Phelps and he's, oh. he's like, he's reading from a teleprompter about Billy Graham. Do you, do you remember uh, this? I, I have not seen this clip. I have to like show you it after we're done. Okay. But, he's, but he just goes in that thick southern accent. He's like, Billy Graham, hellbound false prophet. Wow. <laughs> and so every time I wow. see the words false prophet, I just, I can't not think of Fred Phelps. Oh, Lord have mercy. And in the same chapter on false prophets, it's interesting. It says, not everyone that speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but a prophet is the one who holds the ways of the Lord. Therefore, from their ways shall the false prophet and the true prophet be known. False prophet teaches the truth, but doesn't do what he teaches. So a false prophet isn't defined by the error in what is spoken but the inconsistency in what is lived. And it's interesting. Like, 
because we don't typically think of a false prophet in that way. But this right. is a, it's evidence in James 3 when he talks about the character of true wisdom. Right. Like, what a difference that would make if we judged a prophet, you know, a, someone setting themselves up as a prophet by by how they live rather than, yeah. than what they teach. Yeah, I, it's difficult because you, you get into some messy ground as far as, you know, like, what's the limit then on what is righteous living and what's the limit on what a person can say while still maintaining righteous living? Mm-hmm. Um, and you see, and you see some of that uh, kind of negotiated within early Christianity. So I, I often think of the the Donatist controversy with Augustine and how, and a lot of people will slander Augustine for his handling of the Donatist controversy. But relative to his time, he did give them a graceful opportunity to come back into the fold. And I think that says a lot more about Augustine's character as a person than anything else. Um, and especially, and especially uh, when people slander Augustine for theological statements he may or may not have said. I, I think that's really the judge of a true leader in that instance. But as far as heretics go, I think it's always interesting that within early Christianity, one of the polemics, and this is again where scholars will say there's uh, a bit of bias at work, um, anytime someone's a heretic, they just always happen to be a very immoral person as well. So, yeah, there's a little bit of uh, some interesting coincidence there. Just leave it at that. Yeah, and I think part of that is also that heresy isn't simply heresy because it's incorrect, but it's right. but because it has implications on the life lived, you know? Right. So that's like a, a big difference. Right. Um, where where are you at next? Um, I was thinking. I know we pretty much started in the middle of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I felt like that's where all the good stuff was. Yeah. <laughs> I I kind of tend to jump the gun, unless you want to go back somewhere. Sure. I think. Okay. I mean, we can go back to the beginning. Okay. Um, because we pretty much jumped into chapter seven. In the beginning, um, so in chapter one, it says, fast for those who persecute you. I found it interesting that it doesn't say to simply love those who persecute you, but fast for those who persecute you. And it does not say to fast when people persecute you, but for those who persecute you. And this reminded me of a story in the sayings of the Desert Fathers when two monks entered a city to sell what they made. The monks eventually got separated. And during this time, one of the monks ended up falling into fornication. The other monk convinced him to return to the monastery by saying that he too fell into fornication. And they should both do penance that the old men would prescribe. Even though the one monk did not sin, for the sake of his spiritual brother, he accepted penance as if he did. And it says... That after seeing the love that the one monk had for the other, God revealed to the old men that one of the monks did not sin and that he forgave the other who did. And this story makes me think that the Didache is saying that we ought to fast for those who persecute us the way the one monk did penance for the other. I think this because it immediately afterwards says, for what reward is there if you love only those who love you? Which means the command to fast is to be interpreted as an act of love for the persecutor. 
Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very beautiful way of constructing that love between people in terms of reconciliation and uh, suffering with the other. Because um, mm-hmm. it, it would be really easy to just say, you know, a small prayer, uh, which, which is meaningful. I, I don't want to downplay the importance of prayer here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to enter into that engagement, that involves your your entire body that you become so wrapped up in wanting the other person to be reconciled to you and to others that you would put your own body in a sense on the line yeah Um, and and just simply saying that like you know i'm going to fast for this person because they're not going to fast you know right it's like Mm -hmm. you're 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 doing something for them Mm-hmm. It's just profound. Yeah, it's, it's very beautiful. I also have, in the same chapter, it says, if someone takes something from you, don't ask for it back because you're not allowed. <laughs> um, and this reminded me of another story from the Sayings of the Desert Fathers. The Les Mis fans out there will be familiar with this one. It goes like this. Uh, one day some thieves came to a hermit and they said they've come to take everything out of his cell. Which, side note for those who don't know, a hermetic cell is a small individual living space within a cave or a standalone hut in a remote location. Um, but anyways, the hermit replied, take whatever you see, my sons. So they took everything they found and left. But when the hermit saw that they missed a little bag that was hidden, he picked it up and chased after them, shouting, my sons, you missed this, take it. They were so amazed at his patience that they gave it all back in dependence to him. They said to each other, Truly this man is of God. This story reveals why Christians would be commanded to let people freely take their possessions. It's a vivid means of revealing God to the world. As, yeah. as Christ says, If someone takes your coat, give him your cloak also. It's so powerful that we're not just commanded to not ask for things back because of some like code we, we're living right. by, but because it's it's actually making a statement by doing that. You're representing Christ in your actions. Yeah, it's interesting that, and I don't think it's coincidental either, that we do see examples, uh, these ethical examples of uh, Christian interaction uh, within the text of the Desert Fathers, um, knowing that the Didache did function as a catechetical text within those communities. I, I was reading... One essay actually earlier today, um, earlier this morning, about possibly some influence the Didache had on uh, some monasteries throughout uh, the Middle East. So it would be interesting to do a study, I think, on uh, some of the unique commandments the Didache offers and uh, having within that patristic examples of uh, saints or monks who have uh, lived out these tenets that the Didache offers. Yeah, it kind of leads into uh, the next part that I have here. It says, Woe to him that receives, for if one receives without having any need, he shall pay the penalty for stealing from the needy, and he shall not escape until he pays it all back. So that's a, that's a pretty shocking one. Yeah. Um, it seems St. Ambrose of Milan expounded upon this when he said, The rich man who gives to the poor does not bestow alms but pays a debt. Right. Uh, that's funny that you mentioned... Uh, St. Ambrose, because I actually wrote um, a paper that incorporated some of those same um, comments that he makes there on uh, charity, almsgiving, and uh, the rich and the poor. Oh, yeah. And uh, in one 
in one section, he just outright says, uh, the world was not given to the rich and that whenever you give to the rich, kind of like what you were saying, you're not giving something to someone, but you're giving something to someone that you already owe them. Right, right. Basically, he's accusing them of stealing. Right. And that's all throughout Basil. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, yeah. it's in multiple church fathers. So yeah, I mean, and you see that tradition really early on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and you see that with, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, the, the understanding of that story is that, uh, he got rich through exploitation. Exactly. And the only, the only way to make up for it was to pay back even more than what he exploited from others. Um, in chapter two, it says, do not commit pederasty. That's a, that's a pretty scandalous one. Mm-hmm. Um, for the listeners who may not know, pederasty was the sexual relationship between an adult man and a teenage boy. This homosexual practice seemed to have tormented some monks in the 4th century. Because, again, in the sayings of the Desert Fathers, Abhijan the Dwarf once said, He who gorges himself and talks with a boy has already committed fornication with him in his thoughts. It goes without saying that homosexual priests have fallen to this in our day. I mean, since the, the movie Spotlight was all about the pederast outbreak in the Catholic Church. However, since females commonly married in their teens, and since there's no historical evidence for homosexual Christian marriages, uh, it should be noted that this command has really nothing to do with age and everything to do with the homosexual nature of the relationship. So it, it would have no doubt been understood as a command to not indulge in homosexual eroticism. What do you think? Yeah, the temptation there was particularly in um, parallel to some of the relationships that the Greco-Romans were having among the philosophers. Right. Um, they would take in apprentices and they would um, engage in those relations. And because of, and I'm not, I'm not sure if necessarily these are the story that you quote from from the Desert Fathers is a monastery context. Right. Um, so I'm not sure how much actual ascetic communities are there within the time of the Didache, but that temptation would be there, especially as you take on disciples or those under you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's one way to not participate in those Greco-Roman practices that were so prevalent. And for the most part, depending on where you were, accepted. Yeah. Then chapter two says, do not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. And, I mean, all I have for this is even in the first century, Christians were commanded to uh, leave the unborn alone as they grow in the womb. Uh, I don't have any much more to say about that. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Did you have anything to say about that? Uh, uh, not particularly that one. Um, I am interested in uh, where they talk about uh, turning away from those that are in want. What chapter is that? Oh, I see. The first one, it's uh, oh, okay. 65. Okay. Um, you shall not turn away from him that is in want. You shall share all things with your brother. And shall not say that they are your own. For you are partakers in that which is immortal. How much more in things which are mortal. And obviously, this is in, seems to be in major parallel with Acts uh, 2, where the community there is sharing all things. Mm-hmm. So, but if more than more likely than not, uh, the Didache is dated before Acts. So we see here uh, perhaps two different traditions 
pointing to the same community reality right. uh, within early Christianity, this yep. sharing of possessions and not claiming um, things as necessarily your own. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's an interesting aspect of Christian community that you really only see now in, uh, in more monasteries. I think, and this is probably where, you know, I'll get some, some, uh, hate mail. Uh, I, I think the, the capitalistic imagination kind of really turns on us at this point for Christians because it's hard not to imagine that the things that we purchase with our hard earned money, that, exactly. you know, we imagine that they're ours because right. we worked for it, we deserve it, we bought it. Whereas this, you know, gives a different vision for community. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different worldview, isn't it? I mean, it's my money, I earned it, it's my private property. You know, like, there's so many different aspects of our modern-day Americanism that is so yeah. contrary to how the, how these early Christians lived. Yeah. And I'm sure part of that is um is just that these Christians were were really trying to survive as a minority persecuted right. group that really just had to by necessity live off of each other. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting story that back in my uh my days exploring the charismatic movement, there was I uh I listened to a sermon. There was like a guest speaker at the church I was at once and uh, he was from England and he made a comment in his sermon that shocked me. And it's and he said, back in England, in my church, there's nobody who is in debt. That everybody in, you know, what we would call a parish, pooled their resources and got everybody else out of debt. And that was so wildly foreign and wildly familiar to me at the same time. Because it's like, yeah. like nobody does that. And yet, obviously, right. it's right there in the book of Acts. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And so that that's like... um. That really stuck with me, you know. Yeah. I, I still think about that to this day. And and that, that could be a, a tangible, like practical solution for people who are not monks and right. you know, who are just living in the everyday parish life. Yeah. Um so a little story about uh my wife and I is uh after we got married, um we decided to live with uh two friends of ours. They were also a married couple, and uh, they were also Orthodox. They had two kids, and we all lived in the same house. We were all housemates. And it was actually really interesting because we had a little community. You know, it was just, you know, the two couples. Um, but we shared things. We did things together uh, whenever possible. Obviously, we all had uh, lives and uh, different things going on. But uh, at least once a week, maybe once every two weeks, uh, we would all at least, you know, have some time together and uh, do some things. Obviously, we would, uh, for the most part, go to church together. They uh, attended a different parish. Uh, they, did, they had a different home parish than ours. But there was that aspect, mm. a small taste of that sharing, that whenever we bought something for them or they bought something for us, they, they provided a lot of things for us. And it, it was never this idea of exchange, like, you owe me something. It was something done for the community. And That's cool. It's, it's a, it was a very um, humbling part of my life as well um, because they were very generous to us. And you just don't have a lot of that going on, that generosity. And it's, it's very sad, you know, because uh, I feel like that is a very important witness to the world, especially a world that suffers under crushing debt, yep. especially, you know, for those outside and both inside the church. And those who do have the means that are able and willing to help, 
then I think there is a level of, I don't want to say obligation, but I think there's there's some consideration that we should take into account as communities that are able to pull together resources uh, for those who are in need. Yeah. But people are going to accuse me of being a socialist and communist, you know, but <laughs> hey, I'm just reading the Book of Acts. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard to read the Book of Acts in, uh, in America. Yeah. I don't think that uh, it's... So I'm not here necessarily advocating for we have to go in and change the entire economic system. Right, right. Which, that's a different, it's a related discussion, but it's different. What we're talking about here is about within the Christian community itself. Exactly. And I think that's an important conversation that we should be having is economics within Christianity. Yeah, because like in the in the first century, Christianity had its own economic system that was separate from the the broader political world like they didn't need government funding or whatever <laughs> like like they all took care of each other and yeah they, they didn't get tax exemptions yeah and then that's what we're failing at like we're, we're not supporting each other in ways that we should be and i think if we did that we wouldn't have to engage in these dumb political debates that make everybody all sweaty <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, your your arms sweating in your hands. Yeah. yeah. Nowadays, it's your uh, presidential ballot is sweating in your hands. Oh, oh man. We'll never talk about that on Statistics uh, Podcast. <laughs> Unless it comes up within a text, then we'll have to talk about it. Yep. Fair warning to our listeners. Um, in chapter four, I have one section that said, "You shall not remove your hand from your son or daughter, but from their youth shall teach them the fear of God." Well, that's a little controversial. Yeah. So I wrote that this might be playing on Proverbs 13:24, which asserts that, you know, to spare the rod is to hate the child, mm-hmm. but one that loves their children disciplines them. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's this whole topic about whether the text commands that every child must be literally spanked. I personally think phrases like spare the rod or remove your hand are meant to be understood not as a specific type of discipline, but they're metaphorically referring to discipline itself. I know every kid is different, so there's no cookie-cutter way to discipline every kid at every age. Yeah, uh, just from my own, and this is a very amateur opinion on this, um, uh, I've read a few articles, um, and not just like articles on the internet, uh, these are actually like studies done, psychology articles mm-hmm. regarding uh, child uh, development and discipline. And the difficulty with studies like that, for the most part, they saw that physical discipline when administered to children, especially at a young age, uh, they, they noticed that they had a mostly negative effect on the child. And I actually see more Orthodox, um, more Orthodox Christians seeing this argument. I know, I know several Orthodox couples that do not discipline their child in, uh, in a dominantly physical manner. Um, it's usually through other forms of mm-hmm. uh, dis- uh, not just physical. Interesting. Uh, yeah, physical is like the last resort. I know for some couples, for for some couple, for I know for other couples, it's not a, a resort at all. Like it's something that you never do. Right, uh, right. And I think there, there's some ambiguity there because yeah, uh, it is so hard because children are different. But I definitely think that the safety of the child should be kept as a priority here. For sure. Definitely not advocating I, for child abuse here. Right, yeah, don't, yeah, it's not what the text is saying. And, and, and I think we should also realize that the text, like you, like you were saying, is not clear on what should be administered. Is it metaphorical? 
Is mm-hmm. it literal? Yeah. Somewhere in between? You know, uh, what's the cultural context of this? You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, child discipline was also a bit varied with in antiquity as well. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's from Proverbs and Proverbs right. are inherently poetic. So I only have one more part before okay. where we left off. Okay. Um, in chapter five, it says the way of death is not laboring for the afflicted. And I just have that. It's interesting to note in light of our discussion about faith and works in the Clement episode that the Didache considers it an evil to not offer charitable works for those in need. It literally says failing to work for the afflicted is the way of death. Yeah. And so that's that's some pretty powerful implications there. Yeah, I mean, it is for, for both parties is the the way of death. I mean, for the other Definitely. party, it's a physical death, you know. And for those who aren't willing to work, it's a form of our own inhumane, like return to nothingness, kind of like what Athanasius uh, discusses our uh, movement into non-being is when we fall into sin. So we're, we're dying a little bit. Our humanity is dying whenever we're uh, not working for the good of the other. Because because in working for the good of the other, we're honoring that image of God. And later writers will really pick up on this theme regarding the image of God. But but there are some, some implications of not honoring God's creation, both the creation that is the earth and then the creation that is, you know, your fellow human being. So yeah, it's, it's very important, very scary. It's something that we should really take into account when we face other human beings in need, you know, is Definitely. the idea of death, not just for ourselves in our humanity, but also for them. In chapter 15, it says, Appoint bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord. They are to be truthful and proven because they also carry out the service of prophets and teachers. And I just... It seems that the bishops and deacons seem to have replaced the former roles of prophets and teachers. Like, what do you think about that? Uh, this is one area of uh, early Christianity that I'm not too well-versed in, is the development of clergy. What, what I do know is that uh, this was definitely a time of uh, development where they had to figure out how to organize so they would not splinter off. Uh, obviously, as we talked about earlier, uh, breaking off into factions is problematic. So a way of appointing leaders and figures of authority within the church, uh, modeling after the apostles, was important because they had to maintain some kind of unity there. What do you think? Um, I mean, it's it seems to me that, that that's what happened, that the, the, the roles, anyway, of prophets and teachers remain the same but the the terminology may be changed like the uh you know bishops and deacons being prophets and teachers in their own right i mean that's it's pretty much what they still do today um so and and we don't today call anybody a prophet or or like a, a rabbi right so obviously something happened and the terminology of prophet and and teacher kind of took a back seat, and we right. started using bishops and deacons instead. Which I wonder if that terminology has something to do with the, the parting of Judaism and Christianity as well. It could uh, be, yeah. To differentiate themselves. It could be, and I mean, like, because in our Clement talk, we mentioned that um, he says, um, well, he quotes Isaiah in the Septuagint, who uses the terms bishops and deacons, right? Do you, do you remember yes. that? Yes, I remember that. Um, so. So perhaps it could also be 
a difference in textual adherence. Like maybe if the Jews like stopped using the Septuagint or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, I should know this. Um, but yet the rejection of the Septuagint was definitely also parting of a, a major part of the Judaism Christianity split. It came a little bit later. Definitely, yeah. Uh, the only thing left I have is that one question that I prepared you for. I'll segue into it. Uh, I think the last chapter is particularly interesting because we have references to some of the apocalyptic discourse within the Gospels. Uh, don't let your lamps run out of oil. Don't be unprepared. Don't be ready because you don't know the hour which our Lord comes. Uh, so here we have those parallels within the Gospel of Matthew, especially with the uh, virgins and uh, their lamps. We also have uh, some interesting eschatological discourse uh, that I think is important to expound upon because they really shape part of the community. Come together frequently, seeking the things which are benefiting to your souls, uh, because your entire race is pointless if you never cross the finish line. So I'm hearing echoes of Paul and the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, in the last days, false prophets and corruption shall be multiplied. Sheep will turn to wolves and love will turn to hate. Criminal activity will increase. So, so here we have that concern for that, uh, that imminent coming of Christ, you know, that yeah. Christ will be coming back anytime soon, uh, which was a common view within uh, early Christianity. And what's interesting, and I think this helps with part of the early dating of Didache, and because we see some of these same elements within those early letters of Paul, which were all written before the destruction of the temple. So understanding this text, as something that happens before the destruction of the temple, uh, especially when in Second Temple Judaism, when there is so much fervent apocalypticism at work, there are so many extravagant ideas about what the end of the world is going to be like, and you have your parallels with Paul, which are rooted in uh, the Septuagint, the opening of the sky, the sound of the trumpet, the resurrection of the dead, um, the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven which is a reference to Daniel, mm-hmm. Daniel's son of man imagery, and which is also applied, that Paul also applies to Christ in First Thessalonians. So yeah, there's a lot of intertwining of traditions here within early Christianity that really speak to some of the diversity, but also some of the unity within early Christianity, because you have a lot of gospel traditions within the apocalyptic discourses, and then you also have some Pauline traditions as well. Yeah, so... It says, after these things come the signs of truth, the resurrection of the dead. And then it specifically says, though not everyone will be raised. For it is said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. And like I said, like I wanted to ask you, did this stand out to you? This understanding comes from First Thessalonians 4, where it talks about how the dead in Christ will rise first and the remaining living Christians on earth will be caught up afterwards. However, I've heard like the teaching that everyone will be raised from the dead in the general resurrection. And it's right. just a matter of whether, you know, we're raised to blessing and glory or to curse and damnation. And that right. again goes back to a two ways motif there. But so the my question was, how do we weed through those seemingly different accounts or are they actually just can they be synthesized and they're just two different ways of looking at the same thing? Um, I don't think they necessarily have to be synthesized. Going back to the point about early Christianities and Judaisms, mm-hmm. uh, I think Judaisms, uh, starting there, would probably be helpful. There was no 
singular way to envision eschatology within Judaism. And messianic expectations were different among the different uh, Judaic sects. Eschatological expectations were different. Uh, the differences between the Pharisees and the Qumran community are just wildly different. Uh, the Qumran community, in some of their texts, they have both a king and a priest, two different messiahs, uh, the two messiah theory. Um, hmm. And then they have different visions of how the end of the world would come about. So in the Qumran community, they literally thought that they, they, uh, the Qumran community, or those believers uh, in the God of Israel, would go to war and basically slaughter everyone that was not part of uh, the covenant of God. Um, and then you had the Sadducees, who, from what we understand in the New Testament, they didn't believe in the resurrection. It's difficult to say exactly what the Pharisees believed, but we do know that they believed in the resurrection, but we're not sure whether it was just for the righteous. In Maccabees, it's understood that the resurrection is seen as the victory of God for the righteous. Yeah, so there's that, a variety of things going on. And that's that's the main the main thing that isn't really clear, even in a lot of passages in Scripture, is it talks about this, this uh, resurrection of the dead. But it, it speaks of it in a general sense, and you, you don't ever really know whether it's actually being, whether it's actually including the entire human race, or if it's assuming just those who are faithful, you know? Right. And that's kind of the difficulty in weeding through that. Um, yeah, I, I think, I know a passage in Acts is used in reference to the general resurrection, I think it's towards the end, maybe Acts 24. And then in, I think in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ uses the phrase, the resurrection, as kind of like this generalized event that happens. Yeah, like his, it's all like put together with his return, the second coming right. at the end of the age. Right. And like, like obviously there will be a resurrection. But the mm. question is, is what is coming out of the ground all Christians or not. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, like, yeah, we affirm the resurrection, but it's a, it's like, what does that consist of? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, obviously arguing from a little bit more of a synthesized later tradition, you do have this general belief of resurrection, uh, arguing against that platonic dualism of soul and body that God judges, not just the soul of a person, but the whole person himself. Since uh, sins are not just done through the mind, but also embodied acts. I sent you a couple of uh, possibilities that I thought of. Right. And like if, and this is all just my own theorizing, but um, so option one, you have a resurrection of just Christians or just Christians and the unbelieving are not resurrected and they're just, they just remain disembodied spirits. Option two, both parties are resurrected. The Christians are given incorruptible bodies unto incorruption, and the unbelievers are given uh, bodies that remain to corruption. And then that would be in line with the whole, you know, judging judging the body as well and seeing the, the state of decay, you know. Or the third option, 
both believers and non-believers alike are resurrected the same way. Um, but you yeah. know, it says, it says, you know, the, the wheat and the tares, um, that, that you, you don't, you can't tell until the end of the age, you know, who's right. who. And, right. and perhaps the, um, the wheat and the tares, can be metaphorically shown to be the, the different states of the the new body. But again, I'm just it's all conjecture here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit difficult because it it's also the um the language is also dependent upon your view of hell and how right uh, hell yeah. functions. You throw um, apocatastases in there and then it's all like hell falls apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's very yeah, it's very much loaded and connected with other debates. So I will just say good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy on all of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah. Revert to the classic orthodox response, right? Uh-huh. It's a mystery. Well, right. that's all I have. Me as well. I am dedicated out. My wife right. needs me. Uh, sure. But, yeah. Well, all right, well... Have a good night, Gary. You too. Tell her thank you for uh, letting me borrow you. Oh, no problem. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Bye. All right. You take it easy. Peace. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Patristics Podcast. Feel free to continue the discussion on our Facebook page and let us know if we made any errors. We'll correct them in our next recording.